absolutely essential for every believer to understand as a child of God that our God is good. Not just a a mantra that we like to throw out there when we're having a a worship service or just uh, what we like to say, but it is is vitally important. You go back and study theology uh, since the church age began, go back for for centuries and, and look at what theologian after theologian after theologian Said this, you have to understand this attribute. It's like if it's like you take all the attributes of God and total them up at the bottom, draw a line and say God equals, and this is the attribute you come up with. God is good. For non-believers, when we're sharing our faith, one of the primary we've talked about this, one of the primary things they ask, if your God is good, where is he? How come he's not doing something about this? How come he's not fixing that? How come and we're gonna see next week. What he has fixed, starting next week for a couple of weeks, we're going to look at the fact that God has given us righteousness. Our biggest problem is we're sinners. And because he is righteous, just, and fair, he's given to us the capacity to be declared right with God. The one thing every human being needs, desperately needs. How can I be right with a holy God? And the answer is, you can't. But he will make it possible and did through the person of Jesus Christ. So that's a little intro to next week. What I want to do today, and I want you to take your hand out if you've got one, but I want you to turn to Psalm 73, everybody, and let's look at where we'll, we, we're just going to hit what we did last week and then move on. We've got a lot I want to cover. So we're looking at this attribute. It's incredibly, vitally important in our lives to understand that our God is good. That he is always, Romans 8, 28, there in your handout in Psalm 34, that we've tasted as believers and we've seen that God is good. And so now on a daily basis, we have to trust him. Even though we don't understand. And even though he doesn't answer the prayers the way I want them answered. He doesn't always do what I want him to do. What I have to understand, and this is the essence of faith, is that God never does anything that's evil. He's never doing anything in my life that will harm me. Yes, I am harmed by things. COVID-19 example. Uh, In many other ways. Uh, Emotionally, uh, our uh, granddaughter just left this morning to move to Norfolk, Virginia, our little six-year-old granddaughter. And it's really hard on on, uh, Mary and it's hard on me to realize we'll see her at Christmas and we don't know when, when we'll see her again and We've been seeing her for a long time, her whole life, up until COVID hit. We were seeing her three times a week, and every other weekend she was with us the whole time. And if you're not a grandparent, you might not understand that, but as a parent, you can understand that love. and We're different, a relation. And yet God says, I'm going to use this. I'm going to work good. I'm always, in some way, working good. And so by faith, I've seen God work good in my life. He redeemed me. He's given me, uh, uh, Mary and I have been together 50 years, been married 46, and grandchildren and children and friends and, and the capacity that, that I can earn a living by standing up and sharing the truth of the word of God and being involved in people's lives. God has blessed me beyond anything I could have ever imagined growing up in Memphis, Tennessee. All I ever thought is I'm going to be cool and make a lot of money. Well, I I got one of them right, and it, it ain't the money one. So, and then, and then for God to allow me to do what I do, incredibly blessed. God's been good to me. 
I love that old hymn, count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your blessing and see, remember, we've tasted that God is good. See what God has done. Now, did he stop being good all of a sudden? I want to suggest that you do something in the midst of the coronavirus and COVID-19 and the response and the confusion and misunderstanding. And it's hard to find out what the truth is. There's a pastor in Dallas. It's kind of, I think he's retired now. His name's Tony Evans. And many of you have heard of Tony Evans, a, a Christian author. I, I love everything he writes and I love to go listen to him. You need to Google his message on the coronavirus. Um, it, it's something like it did not surprise God, Tony Evans. Uh, and then there's another one where he's just sitting and talking with his grandchildren, all male, all his male grandchildren and his sons, uh, very powerful in, in dealing with Black Lives Matter right now as an African-American. It's very powerful, both of them. And you, I encourage you to do that and be reminded, again, of who your God is. Uh, Tony, is just, he's just great at getting to the heart of a matter and speaking truth into it. Uh, I really encourage you to do that. Both of them are very short, and you will be I've watched them several times. You will be blessed. He had just recently lost his wife, and she had passed away after cancer. And uh, so, but his his testimony is uh, powerful. All right, back to Psalm seventy-three. So, what we looked at last week, we're not going to go back over all these verses. I'm just going to hit the highlights and then move into wrapping it up today. And Asaph, who was a worship leader under David, and he he was a maturing believer in Jesus in uh, in the one true God. He was a child of God. And yet he looks around him. You'll notice number one on your handout. That's what we looked at last week. He's struggling with the goodness of God. Like many of us do at times, to be real. He's struggling with it. Remember now, this is not a neophyte. We talked about last week. He's not a new believer. He's not somebody who just walked into the church. This is a guy, this is one of the leaders. He's mature. He's, he's up front. He, he, he's, he's one that God used to write some of the scripture. And he's saying, I'm looking around me and notice the things he struggled with. I'm having doubt. I'm having envy. I'm having self-pity. I'm blaming God. Got into being self-righteous. I'm confused. And what I love about Scripture is that it's just honest. Because in many cases, that's where we are. So I want you to drop down to verse 16 in Psalm 73. It's where we left off last week. Verse 16. He said, I'm trying to understand all this, and I'm confused, and, and, and uh, I'm struggling but here's the key. Notice what he does. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. Honest, real, I'm hurting until I went into the sanctuary of God. That's what we're going to focus in a moment. Then I understood therein. He's looking at the wicked. He's looking at those that mock God. He's looking at those who don't want nothing to do with the Lord. And he's saying everything seems to be going really well for them. I don't understand because I'm trying to do what the Lord wants, and I'm trying to live righteously. And, and it's hard. Everything's hard for me, but it seems to be good for them. Come back to that in a moment. Drop down to verse 21. My heart was grieved. I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Here's the last step. You'll notice the steps we just talked about on number one. On your hand down. Now, this is the last one. We really didn't deal with it last week, and I just want to hit it today and move on. And this is bitterness. Bitterness. His doubts, his envy, his confusion. It said it, it led to the point that I was like getting bitter with God. I'm grieved, I'm pained, I'm unhappy to the depths of my being. 
His problem was, who was he focusing on? Was he focusing on his dad and trusting his dad, or was he focusing on himself? He's clearly focused on himself. Looking around him and saying, I don't like this. I don't understand this. I'm confused. I want what they have. He was envious of them. But he had the one thing that they desperately needed and did not have. He had a relationship with the one true God. And here's the deal about bitterness. If you let doubt drive you to seek truth, and we'll see in a moment that's what happens. If it drives you to seek truth, that's great. That's a good thing. You question it, you examine it, you come back to the word, you get alone with your father and you seek the truth and you come away, I'm free in Christ and I understand, I don't know everything that God is doing, but I know that he only works good and I trust him. That's a good thing because it's going to strengthen your faith. But if you let that envy fester and that confusion, that self-focus, that self-pity, and if it leads you to bitterness, you get like verse 21 and 22. I was like a beast before God senseless, ignorant, foolish because I wasn't focused on him. In Hebrews chapter 12, the writer of Hebrews puts it this way. Looking carefully at yourself, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble and by this many become defiled. What the writer of Hebrews was saying to these Jewish believers who were struggling with their faith is you have to be careful, like, say, to Asaph. If you're not careful and you don't deal with this doubt in the right way, you don't go to your father and you don't seek his faith, you don't get in his word, you don't listen to him in prayer, if you don't spend time with your dad, and if you continue to focus on yourself and, you, and you've got pity for, and envy and, and confusion and you don't take it to God and you don't deal with it and you're not honest with it, that root of bitterness is going to spring up in the depths of your being and it's going to grow and grow and grow and it will not just trouble and defile you, it will what? Trouble and defile many others around you. I don't know if you've ever known anybody that was really bitter. I have. And they're just the kind of people you just get to the point like, I can't, I can't be around them. I can't be around that person. It's, they're always a downer. It's always negative. It's always everybody else's fault. Or God's not there for me. I don't even know if there is a God. And you see a lot of this going on even in the church today. Bitterness. Want to blame somebody? Somebody hurt you? That's it. I'm, I have nothing else to do with you. Where Jesus said, someone despitefully uses you, despitefully uses you, quote, you turn around and bless them. Ask God to do something good for them. Pray for your enemies. Seek to bless those who curse you. Why? Because we're different. So back to verse 16. Asaph is struggling. He's letting his feelings dominate truth. He's letting his feelings lead him down a path that's not going to be good for him. He's letting his circumstances control him. He's acting like an animal. If he's not careful, this is going to, he's going to get bitter. And it's going to poison all his relationships. And remember who he is. He's a leader in the church. One of the worship leaders. So what does he do? Verse 16. 
one more time. When I thought to understand this, it was too painful for me. What's the very next word in your Bible? Until. If you've got the translation the Apostle Paul used. Until. I love transition terms, terms of conclusion. When you're studying scripture, always important. He said, this is all too painful for me. I'm confused. I'm envious. I, I, I feel sorry for myself. Where's God? They're mocking God. I, I, what's going on? I, it was all killing me. It was too painful for me. Until. First thing he does. Number two in your handout. As he's searching to understand the goodness of God as it transitions as a believer Maturably, we talked about last week, he doesn't vocalize it because he doesn't want to be a stumbling block. What's he do? And I love verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood. He couldn't understand the meaning of life. He couldn't understand his culture. He couldn't understand the fact that the evil people were prospering while the righteous people were suffering until he did what? went into the sanctuary. Now I realize it's referring to the temple. The sanctuary is where God met the tabernacle, tent of meeting where God met the people in the Holy of Holies. But here's what the word means. It means he went, because that always represented the, the Holy of Holies in particular, the Ark of the Covenant, the lid, the mercy seat. It, it all represented the presence of God. Now verse 17, let's read it that way. I couldn't understand, I was confused until I got into the presence of God. Always the answer for a believer. Get alone with your father. You've tasted that he's good, Psalm 34. You know he's working good, Romans 8, 28. No, you're not going to understand all the immediate circumstances, but you know your God is good. So get alone with him. It should enhance your prayer life, not make you turn away from God, but turn to him even more, seeking his faith, his face. Ecclesiastes 1, the Bible says, What profit is a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? One generation passes away. I set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven. This burdensome task God has given me, has given to the sons of man by which they may be exercised. I've seen all the works that are done under the sun and indeed, all is meaningless and grasping for the wind. End quote. That's written by the man who is described as the wisest man in the world, Solomon. He said, I look at everything around and it, 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 it all is vanity, is the word in the King James. Vanity, meaningless. We work, we work, we work, and then we die. Never hear anybody say that. Life's a, and then you die. That's not the way a Christian looks at it. Life is Christ, and to die is gain. Asaph was looking around saying, am I wasting my time? Maybe I should just party and have a good time and amass a fortune, mock God like all these other people are doing. Even when they die, that doesn't seem to bother them when they die. Then verse 17. I got alone with God. I got into his presence, the sanctuary, the temple, the tabernacle, the, 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 the word of God, the worship center. When I got alone with God and I got in God's presence, then I began to get 
the right perspective. The natural man looks at life only from the physical and the temporal and the personal benefit. The spiritual man, Paul writes about this a lot, the spiritual man looks at life from the eternal, not the temporal, and how can I benefit others by sharing who my God is with them, that it's not about me, it's not my priorities, it's God's priorities, not my will, his will. I'm not going to live my life based on my emotions, my feelings. I'm going to live them based on the facts of God's word. The feelings and the emotions are part of being a human being. But I have to align them up with God's will and God's word. Not be a natural man, a lost man, but a spiritual man, a saved man. One who is seeking the face of God. Look at verse 17 again. Again. I went into the presence of God, then I understood their end, the end of the wicked, the end of the mockers, the end of the the evil, the ones who wanted nothing to do with God. I understood that God is there. God is in control. And I understood, starting in verse 18, I got an eternal perspective on all of this. Verse 18. Surely you, God, have set them in slippery places. They cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they're brought to desolation. As in a moment, exclamation point. They're utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awakes. So, Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. That's from powerful verses. What he's saying here is, without God, life may look really good for now. Look at verse 18. You set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. In a moment, in a moment, it's over with. Without God, you have no capacity to conquer eternity. And when your moment comes and you step into eternity, you may have had everything you wanted in this life. And in that moment, you're suddenly realized terror, like you've never known, destruction, because you did not want God, and he gives you what you wanted, eternal separation from him, that's hell, because you did not want him. He's a God of grace and mercy, and he will not force himself on you. He extends that hand of grace and mercy. He says, verse 19, without God... You're full of terrors. You're brought to desolation. You're consumed with it. Because that's all you got. It's yourself. And it's over with. Verse 20. As a dream when one awakes. So Lord, when you awake, you'll despise their image. And the metaphor here is this. We, we prob- you probably dream every night. Sometimes you remember them, sometimes you don't. When you're awake, you realize the dream was what? It was a dream. It was not reality. It was simply a dream. Sometimes you're glad you wake up from certain dreams and you're glad that, that it's over with. Others, you wish, well, I could go back to that dream. Well, here's the point. A dream is not reality. It's just a dream. And what he's saying here, 
This is such a vital principle for believers to understand. If you look at life with natural, only physical, natural eyes, and you say, I want what he wants, I want what she wants, I want to be what he is, I, I, I want to be happy like they are, if I, if I could just have more money, if I could have more things, I, 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 could have, I know I'd be happier. I don't need God. What I need is what makes me happy. And here's what God is saying through Asaph and what Asaph was beginning to realize as a devout believer. That's not reality. It may be your reality in the moment, but it is appointed unto man wants to die. And after that, judgment. But beyond even that, your reality could be I got all the money I want right now and suddenly that money could be taken from you in this life. And if if that's all you're counting on, if that's your reality, suddenly you're in terror. Or if your relationships are not based on honoring God, they can end in a moment because whoever you're in relationship with may decide I want to be with somebody else because God's not involved and they move on. I'm dealing with some of that in my own family right now. And it's just like, I don't, I don't have any place to go because God wasn't the center of the relationships or ship, ships, ship or ships, plural or singular. If God is not the center of your relationships, they could end in a moment and you got no place to turn. That's not the reality is God says, I am truth. If you want peace, you come to me. You want hope, you come to me. You want to really understand love, you come to me. And I will give you those things. But without me, you may rock along and do fine in your own eyes. But you'll not have true peace, joy, happiness in this life without me. And then you'll be forgotten when that dream awakes. It's like the picture of the parable Jesus gave of the rich man and the beggar, Lazarus. They both died and they went to what's called uh, Hades, what's called Hades. And it had two abodes, Luke 16 had two abodes in Hades. One was called Torments, and one was called Paradise. Abraham, uh, excuse me, Lazarus the beggar, went to Abraham's bosom, or Paradise. Because in, the li- in, in this life on earth, he was a follower of God. The rich man who had everything in this life went to Torments. And what did he ask in Torments? Father Abraham, let me go back and tell my brothers. Let me go back. It was a great gulf. You couldn't cross over and you couldn't go back. You see, this life, the reality is without the person of Jesus Christ in your life, all you have is what you can control. And you can lose it in a moment. And you can lose it for eternity without Jesus Christ. So what does Asaph do? Look at verse 23. 
Nevertheless, I am continually with you, God. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me the glory. The word nevertheless, another one of those words I love, one of those terms. He said, nevertheless, in spite of all that I see around me, how the evil seem to prosper and they mock God and, and they have everything they want and everything really looks good for them and I'm envious. I feel sorry for myself. Nevertheless, as I step back and I get in your presence, nevertheless, now I understand. I get it. Despite the fact I was like a beast, despite my sin of not trusting you, despite my ignorance, I love this. Despite Asaph's ignorance, his foolishness, his self-pity, his envy, his sin, where's God? Exact same place. We talked about this before. He's immutable. Does not change. He's still there. Loving God. He has an abandoned, loving Asaph. He has an abandoned Asaph. He's still there loving him. Look at verse 23 again. I love the metaphorical picture. Nevertheless, despite all of this, despite what I see, and despite what my response has been, God, I am continually with you. Man, I love that picture. Because I know Randy. And I know there are a lot of times that my dad is not pleased with Randy. And when Randy turns back to his dad, and I realize where I was focused, attitude, whatever it might be, where I had gotten away from in that particular sin, whatever it might be, my dad is still there continually with me. What did he say? I will never leave you nor forsake you. So many examples you could use in Scripture, probably our favorite and one we remember the most is Peter. After denying Jesus, the, the moment Jesus needed him the most, he denies him three times and even, even curses Jesus' name. And Jesus appears to him after the resurrection and says, I need you to go feed my sheep three times. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Feed my sheep, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. What was he saying to Peter? I know what you did. I love you anyway. I need you to lead my people, take care of my sheep. You no, know you're not perfect, Peter. I still love you. Whew, I'm glad, aren't you? Because I know me. The beauty of knowing God and the reason he chose the metaphor of father is that we understand parent-child relationships. You know how much you love your children. And you know, despite the fact, if we, those of us who have adult children, we still love them. Woo, they can drive you crazy. We could, we could go around the room and give a few testimonies, I think. We still love them. We want what's best for them. We agonize when they make stupid decisions. We hurt. We want to grab them and say, what are you doing? But we never stop being what? The parent. I never stop loving my three children. Neither do you. you. You never will. Are you always happy? Of course not. Do you see the picture here? Asaph had let God down. Asaph had let himself down. He'd let the children of Israel down, even though he wasn't public yet. 
He wasn't what he should be. And yet God was still there holding him. Look at verse 23 again. Continually you're with me. You hold me by my right hand. I love that picture. You're holding me. You'll guide me, verse 24, with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. I love verse 24. You know what he's saying? You're my security. When I don't understand, when I'm confused, when I'm hurting, when I'm envious, I can come back to you. You're always going to be there. You're always going to be holding my hand. What did Jesus say? The ones that are in my hand, they're going to, no one's going to what? Snatch them out of my hand. Nobody. God's going to be there continually. By the, what's the word continual mean? I'm not just going to be there today. I'm going to be there when? Tomorrow? The next day? Even though you may let me down again, Asaph, I'll be there for you. I will never let you down. I will not change. I will be the same tomorrow as I am today, just like I was yesterday. I will not let you down. I'll be there holding you, supporting you, loving you. Notice verse 24 again. I'm going to guide you to counsel all through your life and afterward receive you to glory. You know what you see here? We've talked about it many times. You see the three tenses of salvation. God was there when he saved me in the past, justification. God is carrying me now, despite my rebellion at times. As his child, he's carrying me now through his counsel, sanctification. And afterward, when I die, he will receive me to glory, glorification. Past, present, future. I'm his child. I cannot stop being his child, despite the fact sometimes I act like I'm not his child, which is what Asaph was doing. But he got back. God is Asaph's security. He's his, see it there on your handout. He's his presence. He's his protection. He's his guidance. He's giving him hope in the middle of his crisis. You hold me. Now, verse 25, he's his strength. Whom have I in heaven but you? I love these rhetorical questions. There's none upon the earth I desire beside you. My flesh, my heart fail. God is the strength of my heart, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Now and forever, the person of my God is my strength. Notice how he puts it in verse 25. All I need on earth, and in heaven is what? The person of God. The person of God. Nothing compares. Only God can sustain me totally in this life and carry me to the next. Martin Lloyd-Jones, great theologian, on these two verses said these words about these two verses. Quote, This is the highest level to which we can ever attain. Indeed, in these two verses we see the goal of salvation, end quote. Verse 25 and 26. 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul wrote these words to his protege. He said to Timothy, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies with us all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, 
to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. I want to read you a a quote. I really want you to pay close attention because this got really, really grabbed my heart when I read this quote. It's from Jonathan Edwards. You may remember Jonathan Edwards. He was famous for the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, uh, which started the greatest revival America has ever known, began out of that sermon. I I want you to listen quote closely to what he said about what we're talking about here. Quote, what is it which chiefly makes you desire to go to heaven when you die? Is the main reason that you may be with God, have communion with him, and be conformed to him? Second, if you, may, if you might live here in earthly prosperity to all eternity, but destitute of the presence of God and communion with him, would you choose this rather than to leave the world in order to dwell in heaven as children of God, there to enjoy the glorious privileges of children in a holy and perfect love to God and enjoyment of him to all eternity, end quote. I know that's a lot to just hear. I'm going to read part of it again. What is it which chiefly makes you desire to go to heaven when you die? Is it that you may be with God and have communion with him and be conformed to him? Or rather, and this is my translation, would you rather live here on earth in prosperity? Not necessarily with God, just having everything you wanted here. Or would you rather leave the world and be in fellowship with your God? I know sometimes people say this, and I know what they mean by it, so, and I'm not being critical, but just to illustrate a point. You ever ask anybody how you're doing, and they say, I'm doing well, I'm above the ground? For a believer, death, burial, resurrection is to go where? Paradise. Home. We'll be with our dad. To hear the phrase, well done, good and faithful servant. Our God is good. He will carry me all the way. And then he'll welcome me home. So the idea of summing this up is, do you love God with all your being? Or is he simply your ticket to go to heaven when you die? If he's just your ticket to go to heaven when you die, you need to make sure your ticket is for that right place. God, Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. If you want to follow me, you've got to deny yourself, take up your cross, and then follow me. Be willing to die to self. And here's why that's important. Let's look at verse 27. God is my salvation. For indeed, those who are far from you, the evil, the mockers, shall perish. You've destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry. But, there's my favorite word, it is good for me to draw near to God. I put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. What's Asaph's conclusion? After all his doubts and the struggle and everything he went through, it drove him to seek God, the presence of God, the perspective of God, and its conclusion is that God does keep his word. It's good for me to draw near to God. 
the summary here in verse 27 and 28 of what it means to love God with all your being, despite your circumstances. Why? Because God rescues us from judgment. He saves us. Why do I envy the wicked? Their end is destruction. My end is paradise. I want to be near God. It's good for me. James 4 says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. God is my refuge, verse 28, in trouble. But I love verse 28, and this is where I want to end today. And we're going to, we're going to share the Lord's Supper together. Verse 28, one more time. It is good for me to draw near to God. I put my trust in the Lord God. Please notice the very last phrase of this psalm. That I may declare all your works. That I may declare all your works. Here's the idea. If our world is ever going to survive any crisis, it's because the church is being what we are saved to be. That beacon, that city is set on a hill, that light, that salt, where they understand who God really is. They see God in how we love, what we say, what we do. That it's not just our ticket to heaven, our religious affirmation. It is our life, our relationship, that we believe Jesus is exactly who he said he was, the way, the truth, and the life, and he offers heaven to them and peace right now. It's our job to communicate that. End of verse 28, to declare all your works. I want to share a quick story with you, and then we're going to pray and go into the Lord's Supper together. This was a pastor that I was reading his testimony. And he said, a number of years ago, I was in Ganeda, Arizona, visiting a Presbyterian mission. In the hospital there, there was a poor Navajo woman who'd been desperately ill, but she'd been nursed back to life and health through the Christian missionary doctor and nurses that were there, the doctor and the nurses. This woman had been thrown out by her own people. They, they thought she was going to die, so they threw her out behind a clump of brush and left her there to die. She laid there for three or four days in the middle of August. And I've been exactly where this is. It can get warm. Middle of August. The heat was terrific during the daytime and the nights were bitterly cold. She lay there three days without food or drink, suffering. The missionary doctor found her, took her to the hospital, and he did everything that he could with his surgical skill and as a doctor and brought her back to health. She was in the hospital nine weeks and she began to wonder about this doctor who had been so kind to her, and she asked the nurse, I can't understand it. Why did he do all that for me? He's a white man, and I'm an Indian. My own people threw me out. I can't understand it. I've never heard of anything like this before. And the Navajo nurse, who was also a Christian, said to him, you know, it's the love of Christ that made him do that. And so the Navajo lady asking, what do you mean about this Christ and this love? Would you tell me more about him? And so over the next few weeks, couple of weeks in and out, she was witnessing to her. She asked, you know, kept sharing the gospel with her and asking her to trust Christ. And she never did quite get there. 
And then one day the Navajo doctor, not excuse me, the missionary doctor came back in. And the nurse had been sharing the gospel with the Navajo lady. And she said, do you want to trust Christ? And the Navajo lady saw the doctor and said, if this Jesus is anything like him, I can trust him and I want that. All he did was lovingly take care of her as a Christian. And then the gospel was shared with her through the nurse. The point is, we're the church. And if our culture is going to change, we got to change it. Politicians aren't going to change it. Government's not going to change it. I think we've proven that. It has to be the church. Believing that our God is good, even though we don't understand, and we just keep coming back to him. Would you bow your heads, please? Let's pray together, and then we're going to share the Lord's Supper. Father, we thank you that you are good, that that attribute just sums up all that you are, that you're good. So, Father, as we get ready to spend time together sharing in the Lord's Supper, we simply pray that we would focus on how you manifested your goodness at the cross through the blood that was shed to pay the price for our sins, and the body that was horrifically tortured and given that we might be set free, the sacrifice that took your wrath so that we could be redeemed, that we would never forget, that we would remember Jesus Christ, who is our Savior. We pray in his name. Amen.